Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn how to parent pragmatically, how to manage digital delirium and raise sane kids. My first guest is Dr. Alec Packer. Alex is an educator, psychologist, and award-winning author of numerous books for parents and teens. He received his PhD in educational and developmental psychology from Boston College and his master's degree in education from Harvard. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, you have written this book that has captivated my attention. It's called Slaying Digital Dragons, Tips and Tools for Protecting Your Body, Brain, Psyche, and the Digital Dark Side. First of all, I love the title of the book. Second of all, I have young adults for whom I wish I would have had this book a few years back. Well, I was motivated to write the book out of concern at what the, uh, the digital world is doing to growing brains and bodies and social beings. And I wanted to empower uh, young people to, to join the resistance against big tech, to take charge of their their tool and not become its tool. Amen. And th that is the hope, not just for our teenagers and our younger kids, but for ourselves, because we all know how easy it is to slip down the digital abyss. And then we find hours have passed and we come up and we say, what happened? Exactly. You know, we don't make decisions about our online life. I mean, I feel like from birth, almost kids are sucked into it. And I'm the first to recognize it's a miracle, the wonderful things we can do online and through social media. It's truly a miracle, but it's also a monster. And that's really what I was focusing on. You know, how can we help people become more mindful about the time they spend on their devices? Let's talk to the subject of books first, because you wrote this book, Slaying Digital Dragons, for a teenage audience. And I know this, and I know this uh, that that was your intention. And then I, I mentioned to you before we got started chatting that, you know, to get a teenager to read a book today is a challenge because of this digital distraction. Well, I wrote a 500-page book for manners about manners for teens. <laughs> and that book became an award winner for reluctant readers. And I think the way you get kids to read books 
is, first of all, it's got to engage them. It's got to be meaningful to their lives. They need to feel validated, uh, respected. So I approach my books for teens uh, through that lens with a lot of humor, self-deprecation, a lot of empathy, and I write it in a very conversational, bite-sized manner, so you can dip in and dip out. And for slaying digital dragons, well, smartphones are like teens' significant other. I mean, they care about (laughs) it. It, It's like their best friend. And I think that teens are motivated to learn more about it. You know, Lisa, I think of it sometimes like, you know, when parents buy a book on sex for their teenagers and the kids roll their eyeballs and I don't need this and I'm not going to read this. And then the second they're alone in their bedroom, they open it up. And I think the same will happen with this book because the subject matter is just so close to virtually every teen's life. Let's talk a little bit about the development of a teenager's brain, because I think you hit the nail on the head that these digital devices, when we abuse them, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, texting mom or calling a friend or looking up something quick on the internet, but when we're literally spending hours a day on them, really are toxic for all systems. I agree. I think You need to think of the time teens spend on their devices. In many ways, it's an assault on the brain. Now, not everything they do, they might be listening to a meditation app, you know, but so much of what teens experience is just a nonstop visual, auditory stimuli, you know, snaps and texts and videos and sounds and flashes and feeds. And the prefrontal cortex of the brain during adolescence goes through a major important growth period. And that's the part that, you know, is responsible for higher functions, uh, making good decisions and learning and remembering and focus. And that's the area you want to be bulking up during those years. But if the brain is constantly being assaulted, that doesn't uh, bulk up the prefrontal cortex. It triggers the more primitive areas of the brain, the flight or, uh, or fight response. Because your brain doesn't know the difference You know, if you go to a movie and there's an incredible car chase, your heart's going to start pounding, you'll be on the edge of your seat, and your brain doesn't know that it's fake, (laughs) you know? And the same thing happens with your phone. Your brain's receiving all these stimuli, and it's in a constant state of nervous system arousal, trying to determine, you know, is that a charging elephant? Oh, no, it's just a TikTok video. So that's why I think, you know, we should be concerned not only about all the time kids are being assaulted on their things, but also thinking about 
what it does to their higher brain functions. I think you bring up an excellent point. And then I also think about the the imagery that the kids are receiving, uh, you know, online through this, how, you know, messages about sexuality, messages about body image, messages about being enough or not being enough or not being like him or her. And therefore I am inadequate. Talk a little bit about that because I see that it could really assault our self-esteem. I think that is one of the most toxic aspects of the digital world, and especially social media. And, you know, people sometimes say to me, oh, you know, teens, that's the period they have obsessions, and, you know, they'll just read. They used to, you know, generations ago, they'd never leave their boombox, and they'd be reading comics, and, you know, all those things. But what's different today is social media is an active agent. It is, those platforms are trying to manipulate, influence, and even addict users. Now, there, there are some yes. kids who are just with it. You know, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. Some kids dip in and out of social media. It's good for them. They use it to have fun and connect with people and make arrangements for offline socializing. But for other kids, what it becomes is a 24-7 social report card. And the platforms introduce this artificial, superficial system where the whole point becomes trying to be online popular, the, the likes and retweets and followers and shares. And for many teens, that is what hijacks and mutates their sense of self, their self-confidence, self-esteem, and they lose touch with who they are. Yeah. And I think there's a physiological rush when we get these likes and follows that gives us, you know, a, a dose of dopamine, right? It makes us feel good about ourselves. And so we continue to seek more of it. Absolutely. I mean, Big Tech and the social media platforms, they are as sophisticated as you can get about understanding neurology and human psychology and human nature, they know that intermittent rewards are the best way to keep you coming back to that site. And likes and, you know, the, the approval you get from posting things online, those are a definition of intermittent rewards. So kids may put something up on their social media uh, page, and then they're going to be checking every few minutes. Did I get somebody like it? Do I have enough likes? Oh, should I take it down? And again, it just takes over so much of their uh, experience. And as a result, then the person becomes outer referenced instead of inner reliant. Yes, and they can become depressed. They can feel they're uncool and unattractive. 
and um, you know it can can really affect their self also their offline social skills you know if you're constantly being told online that you're not good enough or attractive enough or rich enough or you don't have the coolest clothes, well, that's going to cross over to your, you know, your offline time uh, with other people. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Alex Packer. We're talking about his latest book, Slaying Digital Dragons, Tips and Tools for Protecting Your Body, Brain, Psyche, and Thumbs from the Digital Dark Side. To learn more, please visit alexjpacker.com and on Twitter at HowRudeBook. We'll be right back, and that's a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back. Don't you just love that sound? Who says money can't buy a little happiness? It's the sound of a new sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that will help you start, run, and grow your business from anywhere in the world. More than 10 years ago, I started this podcast to establish professional street cred and build a library of top-notch inspirational content in my area of expertise. Today, Harvesting Happiness remains the same passion project, but now it's a full-time business with lots to manage. Shopify gives entrepreneurs like me customizable resources to make big ideas into things that sell and the extensive tools to help manage the back end of the business. Discover endless possibility. Shopify is reinventing tools of growth for more than 1.7 million businesses. Discover inspiration. Shopify believes in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and be a force for good. Discover your possible. Shopify unlocks opportunity for more business. Did you know that every 28 seconds, a small business owner is making their first sale with Shopify? Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-expanding suite of integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. This is Possibility Powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash happiness, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash happiness right now. Shopify.com slash happiness. Now let's get back to it. And we're back continuing the conversation about pragmatic parenting, managing digital delirium and raising sane kids. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Alex Packer. Alex, we were talking over the break about the impact the pandemic has had on our social media habits and just are being digitally distracted. Yes. Earlier, we were talking about the two sides of the digital coin, the, the miracle and the monster. And I think the pandemic <laughs> reflected that so starkly for so many people. On the one hand, our digital lives were lifesavers, often literally. 
and they allowed Indeed. us to yes. stay connected, to, you know, have FaceTime and Zoom calls, and to do remote work and remote learning, and to stay in touch with people we care about. So that's a marvel. On the other hand, more people spend far more time on their devices, so a lot of the negative elements also got reinforced. One of the most touching images throughout the pandemic, I'd always try to see a video of, remember when teachers and principals would drive up and down streets to hand out gifts or books or diplomas, or someone had a birthday, and there'd be a drive-by birthday party. And I I found that so touching because it was such a statement of how nothing can replace face-to-face interaction, even though it seems that's the direction so much of the digital world is going in, uh, especially don't get me started on this metaverse stuff. (laughs) Oh. oh, go ahead. Why not? Take, take well, a stab at it. <laughs> it worries me because, again, we're not making conscious decisions really about our participation in the digital world, and especially young people. They just evolve into it. They're like the frogs in a pot of water that's put on the stove, you know, and big tech keeps turning up the heat. And to the extent that the metaverse, and, you know, it's unclear exactly what form that will take, but if it's Mark Zuckerberg's vision, I'm worried already. Um, But, you know, the metaverse is going to so blur virtual reality and what we think of as offline reality that I think for many young people growing up, if that becomes a dominant force, they're not going to know the difference. Yeah. And, and the way we interact with real people, you know, the sort of our social interactions become tarnished or jaded, right? Because we don't look like, we don't look like that superstar, you know? Right. And just as far as we can see right now, young people's social skills have been weakened Now, you know, there's always that correlation causation debate with research, but, you know, the the collapse of empathy in many people, uh, kids are less independent than they used to be, their street smarts and their social skills aren't as developed as they used to be. So, you know, I think so often with technology, We get going full speed, and then we learn about some of the unintended negative consequences. Yeah, I I agree with you. What can we do as parents and responsible folks in our young people's lives to emulate good digital behavior and to also emphasize and support critical thinking and all the good stuff that makes a whole happy person. First thing parents can do is set a good example, because modeling is the most powerful teacher there is. 
So parents need to take a, a, a good look at their own uh, devices and how they use them and to see what they are modeling for their teens. So get your own house in order, I guess, is, is one way of putting it. Um, another thing is to get your head in the right space. You know, I think most parents tend to focus on the amount of time kids spend on screens. You know, some parents think it's too much, and other parents think it's way too much. And I think that kind of shifts the debate. That makes it almost a power struggle between parents and teens, and the parents always telling the teen to get off the phone. I think it's just as important to get a sense of what is your teen doing with that yeah. time. You know, are they creating or vegetating? Are they passive spectators or active participants? Are they being sociable or solitary? You know, is it a, a nice, healthy balance of activities online? Or are they spending, you know, eight hours on one video game? And equally important, how does it make them feel? The apps they're using, do they feel happy and productive and socially connected? Or do they feel after being on them lonely or stressed or inadequate or depressed? So I think parents need to kind of think about those questions and have that in their minds. And then most important thing they can do is to start a dialogue with teens um, you know, create an atmosphere for a safe, non-judgmental discussion. You're not judging, preaching, lecturing, but listen. You know, ask questions and then listen to what your teen says, and you'll learn so much. And if you've got a teen who's reticent or secretive, you can ask these questions in terms of, their friends or their classmates. And that removes it a step and might encourage, you know, reticent teens to open up a bit. I think you make some very good points here. And the other thing I wanted to add is as parents or, or parental figures in our kids' lives, I think we also need to look at how they're doing in all the dimensions of their well-being, right? You know, if they're in good physical health, if their their minds are good, if they're doing well in school, if they're, you know, it, it, working and living in an environment that is stimulating, they've got good social connections, then I would say that maybe their, their digital device is not harming them. But when you start to look at kids who are not getting out in the sunshine, their grades are suffering, they don't have good connected relationships with people, they're not socializing, they're not, you know, not thriving, then that's something to look at. Absolutely. You know, is there a healthy balance between their online and their offline lives? I have a series of nine very wacky but science-based challenges in the book that are designed to help kids assess their own screen scene. And a lot of it has to do with presenting them with possible warning signs that would indicate their, their use 
their screen time may be problematic. So getting kids to be mindful about how it's affecting yeah. them is a great step. And, you know, parents can help to do that by asking questions. And those of us out there who either have teens or who have had teens know that they're really seeking a certain level of autonomy and independence and not being told what to do. And if they're given the agency to make these decisions, like they're given the information, you know, these are the, these are the signs to look out for. Do you see any of these in yourself that it gives them the opportunity to self-regulate or at least try? I think you have hit on the key there. And that's why I think this book can empower teens, because the approach it takes is that you need to be in charge of your digital life. It's up to you. And to empower the teen, and I think they will be receptive, because between 40 and 50% of teens say that they feel addicted to their phones. And nine out of 10 teens believe that too much screen time is a problem for their peers. So they are very aware of the potentially uh, harmful effects. So I think parents can encourage their teens to take charge of their phones, to make them their tools, and to, you know, reject the shallow and nasty aspects of social media. You know, stay away from platforms if they make you feel bad. Um, Find that healthy balance between online and offline. Uh, Post to share your life, but don't let posting become your life. Yeah, I hear you. And I want to ask you one more question. And this is this relates to the title of your book, Slaying Digital Dragons, Tips and Tools for Protecting Your Body, Brain, Psyche, and Thumbs from the Digital Dark Side. So I want to ask you about that thumb fatigue. (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, I always feel that if your thumbs are the size of a cantaloupe, that's definitely a warning sign that you're doing too much (laughs) texting. The, The main physical signs I I talk about are disrupted sleep, low energy, tech neck, you know, unhealthy uh, weight or nutrition or unhealthy hygiene. And uh, the thumbs really just are the byproduct of spending too much time texting. Do you know that texting is now the number one preferred method of communicating when you ask teens? That's something to be concerned about. And the book, you know, it's not just pointing out possible problems and risks. It all works up to a chapter called Give Yourself an App Endectomy. (laughs) And that is a guided self-intervention that teens or anyone can do to cut out unhealthy aspects of their screen scene and to rebalance their online and offline lives. The the book is written for teens, but the information in it is really, I think, important for anybody who spends time on, on their devices. 
I agree. Dr. Alex J. Packer, thanks for joining me on the show today. To learn more about Alex's work, please go to alexjpacker.com and on Twitter at HowRudeBook. And his latest book, Slaying Digital Dragons, Tips and Tools for Protecting Your Body, Brain, Psyche, and Thumbs from the Digital Dark Side. Alex, thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Let's take that pause now. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing the conversation about pragmatic parenting, my next guest is Neil Brown. Neil Brown is a licensed clinical social worker. He is also the author of Ending the Parent-Teen Control Battle, Resolve the Power Struggle, and Build Trust, Responsibility, and Respect. That should be a prayer. Anyhow, my guest, Neil Brown, is a graduate of the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. He became a student of structural family therapy and brief therapy from which he evolved his own highly actionable therapeutic model for helping families transform out of unhealthy family patterns. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Lisa, I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy to have you here because... I've raised kids. You've raised kids. We work with kids all the time. And raising teens is not an easy thing. It is not an easy thing. And it's important to have some sense of what this thing really is. And that can be helpful. But the truth of the matter is that we're none of us are going to do it perfectly. (laughs) Yes. Have you noticed? I have noticed uh, there are plenty of shameful moments in my parenting history, as I'm sure there are in yours, even with all your education. Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, you're a person with a certain amount of bandwidth. You run out of bandwidth and there it goes. (laughs) Boom. The bomb goes off. (laughs) Exactly. That's true in families all across, you know, the Western world. I mean, it just is. And that has to be understood. It's not to be indulged, but it certainly is to be understood and accepted. We're imperfect creatures and so are our kids. I agree with that. And I also, I'm not opposed to a good argument with my kids. I don't know if that's been your experience with yours or in how you guide your clients, but you know, being argumentative is not necessarily a bad thing. I think understanding the beast with whom we're dealing is really important. That is very important. Understanding our kids and knowing their temperaments, their natures, their personalities so that we don't get invested in trying to change that, but instead trying to work productively with that. And yeah, families all have different cultures and backgrounds and uh, temperaments within those families. So in one family, um, having strong discussions and disagreements is part of the process. And another one that could mean, oh, my goodness, the house is going to come down. I better duck and cover. So it's a different thing in different families, and they're all reasonable. Let's talk about what really is going on with these teenagers. Developmentally, 
what is happening in their brains, what is happening with their need to control or the perception that they need to control or that they want to separate from us parents and, and our authority. Talk to us, tell us, reveal to us. Okay. Well, here's how I like to think about it. You know, during childhood, the family was really the decision maker, the place that kids got affirmed, they felt supported, they knew what was expected, they knew what they were going to do, they knew with whom they were going to do it. The friends they had were wherever they were, whether it was their cousins or their classmates or their soccer team, that's who you're with, those are your friends. And then you start this journey from childhood to young adulthood. And if I just think about just that little period of time, that footbridge that kids are going to get on and walk over, that you know 13 to 18 range, then I'm going to call that you know essentially adolescence. Yet young adulthood, that 18 to 24, that next six years is actually another uh, the last stages of adolescence. But that's another story. The story I'm talking about right now is the 13, 12, 13 to 18 year old group. And that 12 year old group is just learning like, oh, my goodness, I have to choose my friends. I have to decide which kids I'm going to be, which group I'm going to be in. Where's my pod? Who are my peeps? Who are my people? Who am I going to connect with? How am I going to how am I going to fit in? That implies Oh, my goodness, what music am I going to think is cool? What clothing am I going to think is cool? What hairstyle am I going to think is cool? And uh, suddenly my identity as a peer becomes more important than my identity as a family member. And if you think about those 12, 13, 14-year-olds, they're, you know, there's still there's still a lot of child in them. But they can see like, oh, my goodness, I'm supposed to become a teenager. And I can see like, oh, my God, there's those 16 year olds and 17 year olds and 18. I'm supposed to start being being accepted by them, being like them. So they're kind of walking up to the top of this. I call it a footbridge, because if you look at it, if you're looking over this footbridge, you're looking like over the top. You can't quite see the other side. You're just looking at going up. So that's that 13, 14, and you get to be 15, and now you're kind of at the top of that footbridge, and that that uh, individual is a little bit young teenager, but a little bit older teenager as well. They kind of have their sense of who they are and what their group is and what they like, whether they're an athlete or a musician or both or an academic or whatever. They're, they have their identity and where a sense of who they are. But they're still not very motivated necessarily by what's next for them. They're just kind of happy in the in the world of adolescence. Now, I was just going to say that, that there's very little awareness of cause and effect at that age. And the, the separation from the parents, right, where they would rather hang out with their friends, if you're not aware of what's happening, can make the parents feel pretty bad. That is so common that we start to feel rejected that our kids want like their friends or their friend group uh, or even their friends parents better than us and that can be hurtful when we've invested and sometimes even over invested 
uh, in our connection with and intimacy with our uh, our children. Yeah. Can I give just this last little yes, piece? Yes, please. I'm crossing sorry. over that crossing over that bridge. We get when kids get to be around 16 and certainly 17, they're starting to think about what's next. They're starting to think about, am I going to go to college? If so, which college? What do I need to do now to be ready for the next thing that I'm going to be doing? And so whereas younger adolescents are motivated by just moving away from family and towards a, a new identity, 16, 17, and certainly 18-year-olds are motivated by what's next for them. And they have their eyes more on the uh, on on the future. And yes, there are a lot of neurological changes going on during out all this time. I certainly am not a neurologist. I'm not going to go into all of it, but there is, you know, essentially building that the executive function capabilities of uh, of the of the brain. And there are a lot of changes that uh, that are going on, including uh, myelination of of uh, um, nervous of uh, nerve pathways so that uh, information uh, happens uh, occurs more quickly it's stored more permanently and it's more integrated uh, different parts of the brain can access other parts of the brain and certainly the neocortex uh, grows and that kind of ability to think abstractly and uh, and rationally uh, um, grows and develops as well. And also, I think there's a movement from being, you know, inner referenced where it's all about me, myself, and I, to being outer referenced where it's me, myself, and I in context to the outside world. Uh, yes, I think that is, that's very true. And because uh, kids have to figure out where they're going to fit in. Um, I think a lot of uh, our listeners right now are thinking, you mean my kid is not self-centered? Um, <laughs> because, uh, because what they want seems like it's uh, what they want at everyone else's expense uh, without necessarily a lot of gratitude uh, accompanying it. But you're right. They're actually thinking about what they want in terms of how it fits into a bigger picture. And in your book, you talk about starving the beast, you know, the beast being that control battle and the teen. How do you suggest we approach these kids in, in, in dealing with them and in, in navigating the jungle? Okay, well, I mean, that is such an important question, Lisa. And let me just approach it this way. There are going to be lots of difficulties, arguments, stresses of raising your teenager. You're going to see risk factors that they're not going to see, and you're going to want to be conservative about certain things. Uh, you're going to see them maybe um, being too shy and withdrawn, and you're going to want to see them get out and do something differently. All those feelings and, and the struggles between parents and kids are going to happen, and that's normal and it's reasonable. What I talk about in my book is when there's a problem, but we keep responding to the problem and the problem keeps not resolving. Mm. So I keep trying to get my kid to do or not do a certain behavior. They keep resisting my efforts <laughs> to get them to change. And now that pattern of interaction between the two of us has now become its own element in the family. 
So now it's not just me and my kid. Now it's me, my kid, and what I call the beast or the control battle, which now as we even engage each other, we anticipate the negative coming from each other. And so even when I come in with my sweetest, nicest self, it's going to be perceived and responded to with uh, resistance. It's going to be perceived negatively and responded to with resistance uh, because that pattern is already in place. So it's that pattern of interaction that has developed uh, that has uh, now has a grip on uh, the family dynamic. The dance. I mean, there's a, there's a, a dance routine that has been well established between the parents and, and the kids. We need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about navigating the wild jungle of parenting our teens. My guest today is licensed clinical social worker, Neil D. Brown. The book we're talking about is Ending the Parent-Teen Control Battle, Resolve the Power Struggle, and Build Trust, Responsibility, and Respect. To learn more, visit Neil dbrown.com on twitter at neil d brown l c s w and on facebook and instagram it is neil d brown l c s w here comes the pause we'll be right back and that is really a promise who says money can't buy happiness whether you are a skeptic or seeker check out lisa's new book are we happy yet eight keys to unlocking a joyful life a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at barnes and noble Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We'll continue the conversation with my guest today, Neil Brown. We're talking about pragmatic parenting. Let's get back to the conversation about how to raise some sane kids. So, Neil, we talked about, you know, starving the beast, you know, and ways that we can um, navigate with our teens. What about strategies when we really feel like we're running out of bandwidth? We just like, we're so done with it. The dance is getting old. You don't want to tell them to pick up their room anymore. You don't want to tell them to be home on time anymore or whatever, whatever your battles are. What next? Okay. Well, first and foremost is to understand when you're in one of these negative cycles, uh, when you're in a, a bona fide control battle, then the next thing you want to do is simply don't reinforce it. Um, don't worry about solving the problem. Worry about not enforcing or reinforcing the control battle. Don't feed the beast. So it might mean that you're asking your kid to empty the dishwasher or get off of their computer and they're not doing it. <laughs> yes. Like We'll figure that out later, but just don't fight about it again yet. Think about, let's think about what we could do differently that might begin to shift out of uh, that that current negative cycle that 
you and your kid are in. That's number one. The next thing is realize and believe that your kid is really a good kid. They're, they're struggling. They're not, they're trying to figure out how to be who they are. They're trying to figure out how to deal with you, how to, how to be themselves in a, in an autonomous and, and feel good kind of way. They're struggling just as much as we are. So let's get back to my kid is essentially a really good kid and I believe in them and I'm going to go from there. And then the, the next thing is like, okay, what's the tone I'm approaching them with? Is my tone part of the negative message that mm. they're going to resist? That's the, the next thing that we're going to approach it with. And then finally, who's really responsible for their behavior? Is it me or is it them? Can I change their behavior? Can I change anyone's behavior? Well, um, unless I've got a loaded weapon, the, pro- the answer is probably not. So how can I invite uh, my youth into healthier behavior? Now, that sounds like I want to do it with daisies and, uh, <laughs> and, and mint. But really, uh, at the end of the day, there is accountability. And whether uh, we want our kid to change out of hibernating in the room on a, on a um, computer at, for 24 hours a day, or we want our kid to come home uh, because they're not honoring uh, uh, curfews, uh, at the end of the day, there is accountability. And you don't have to be angry to enforce accountability. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to be um, threatening to enforce accountability, you can, with a smile on your face and a belief in your kid, you can say, you know what, this is a privilege. And unfortunately, you're not earning that privilege right now, because that's how we get privileges. You get privileges because you earn them. And it's not being earned right now. So it needs to go away. But when you want it back, talk to me and we'll figure it out. So we can, yeah, <laughs> we can we can go to our positive self. We can say, hey, you're a great kid, but right now this isn't working. And so it can go away. And uh, and suddenly there's accountability. But that tone is positive. The belief in the kid is positive. And now we're saying you're in charge. If you want these privileges, you yeah. can do something about it. Which is part of the struggle anyway, right? The, the seeking agency. Exactly. And now the question is, how do kids seek agency? Yeah. And it, it, it generally goes without being particularly identified, but they, they get agency from being essentially responsible and having a good attitude. Those are the two things. I mean, within reason, right? So when they manage their responsibilities and responsibilities mean school, home, social responsibilities, like when they go out, they manage their selves, they're not coming back stone drunk. Uh, and but and, uh, and you're not getting calls from the police. So, you know, they're managing their responsibilities. And then when you they're they're maintaining an attitude of essentially cooperation, maybe eye rolling. Oh, know, maybe, yes, maybe a little delay. Maybe a little complaint, but they're cooperating and they're essentially being respectful. You're not being called names or raged at. You know, th- then, you know, then, you know, they're, 
with that, we can offer them privileges and allow them to keep moving themselves forward as they develop the capacity to, to manage the responsibilities that we're giving them. So, you know, that's the formula. When, when we're in a control battle and they're not earning those privileges, they're not earning agency in the right way, they're fighting us to get their agency, then we have to say, whoops, we're doing this the wrong way. There's a better way. And when you want to know what it is, talk to me because I will be happy to, I know you want those privileges. I want you to have those privileges. You want independence. I'm on your side. I want you to have independence. Now, the question is how we get there together. And when you want to know, we'll talk about it. I love this because you're removing resistance. You know, you are so wanting to give them everything that they want. And the approach is direct. It's respectful. It's exactly you know the title of your book. And it's modeling the very behavior we're asking the kid to perform. You hit it on every note there, Lisa. Exactly. What we're saying is agency is within you. You're in charge. I am on your side. I do believe in you. And yes, now I'm modeling how our relationship really can be. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings me to the thought experiment strategy, <laughs> which, okay. which, which worked well for me with my kids. It may okay. work well for others out there. I don't know. But it was, you know, put, put yourself in my shoes. That was what I would say. That was my mantra. Like, okay, you know, I, I see you don't want to do this or you're upset by this or whatever, whatever the struggle might be. What would you do if you were in my shoes? You're the parent. I'm the kid. Hmm. Well, I think that's worth a try. Some kids will uh, play that. I mean, you, you could simply, if you want to make it less personal, because they don't want to put themselves in your shoes at all, because it's like they're in your shoes. It's just like, oh, give me the keys. I'd give I'd give me the keys to the car. <laughs> I'd give me the 20 bucks. What? So it might, I mean, you might get that if you're in a control battle. Now, if you weren't in a control battle with your kids, Lisa, then it might be that they actually go, okay, well, let's think about that and enjoy the, uh, the contest to think about it. If you're in a control battle, everything you do and say is going to be resisted. Uh, so if you have a good idea like that, your kid is very likely to say, that's stupid, I'm not the parent, blah, 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 and they're not going to go there. So another way to, to do that, which I think is a, a great idea that occurs to me from your suggestion is you could simply role play it like, well, let's see, let's let's think of a different situation. Let's think of another kid. This is the kid's situation. This is a, you're you're being the parent. What would be some good ideas for how a parent might deal with that situation? So if you make it not so personal about them, I like it might that be a better it might be a better outcome. The third party thought experiment. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Right. We're, we're almost out of time. And I want to talk a little bit about neurodiversity and mental mm -hmm. health, because mm -hmm. oftentimes in working with families, I hear from parents who are stressed or upset that they feel that their child is not on point or not meeting the milestone developmentally of where they perceive that they should be based upon the fact that the kid has diagnoses or has gone through depression, particularly in the last couple of years. And at the end of the day, the kid still is 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and comes with all of the, the wiring issues of that stage in their life as well. 
Well, Lisa, you're raising a really important point about how our society is approaching uh, the uh, our kids, our kids and teenagers today as if they're all supposed to be one thing and one way and learn one one way and process information one way when in fact we're not even close to that nor yeah. should we be yeah, yeah absolutely so we we need a much broader way to understand how kids learn and process information and grow uh, we have ADHD kids. We have kids with learn, learning disabilities, but are they really disabilities or are they differences? Uh, and, uh, and we need to respect that kids learn and grow in different ways. That's all there is to it. What about a situation where you have two parents whose parenting style differs greatly. You know, maybe maybe one's permissive, the other is not, and then you've kind of got a jungle within a jungle. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is all parents parent differently. You're not going to find two parents who parent the same. And so to the extent that we see that as, as more resources and different things that kids can get from different parents, that's probably um, a great thing it becomes a problem when parents become part of the control battle. And now we're arguing about whether or not Johnny should be able to go out tonight. And I'm angry at you because you're saying no. And I think you're too strict and you're angry at me because I undermine you. And I say yes to everything and I'm closer to Johnny than I am to you. And now we have, now Ooh. we really do have a problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we don't want parents to get uh, polarized like that. We want parents to find a way to work together um, and manage their differences in a healthy way. But here's here's a rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is never undermine the other parent. Yes. When, the other parent when the other parent sets a limit, um, if you disagree with that limit, fine. You can talk about it and talk about it in a larger strategy with your partner uh, but if a parent sets a limit, you don't undermine that limit, period. And and you don't talk about it in front of the kid. Absolutely. <laughs> Take it outside. <laughs> yeah, because that triangulates the kid. And yeah. now, the, you know, and that's not a fair thing to do to the kid. We are nearly out of time for real this time. And I want to just touch on one more point and then, then we're going to need to go. And what is your advice or words of wisdom when the teen is out of control? Yeah. So out of control, beyond parental control or out of control youth is a very significant and difficult situation and one that places their whole lives at risk. Yeah. So in other words, if you don't complete adolescence successfully, then what's your young adulthood going to be like? And if young adulthood isn't managed successfully, what's adulthood going to look like? So we really want these beyond parental control situations to be taken very seriously. And so that involves uh, taking a look. There's a control battle. There is absolutely a control battle going on when you have a beyond parental control youth. And so what is that control battle? And then we have to double down on some of these skills and techniques for how we're going to rein this kid back in. And what are the resources that that kid really needs? 
So it might be they need a different learning environment or they're going to need a coach or they're going to need a certain kind of uh, support. So understanding the youth, what their needs are, but finding a way to to establish uh, whether it happens quickly or slowly, accountability and earned privileges model. And what are the resources that we have to have to implement accountability with while maintaining that positive tone, uh, humor, positivity, uh, belief in the kid, appealing to their better angels. All those things have to apply in the, uh, under the most difficult of circumstances. Yes. The, so we're really going to be more positive than we think is humanly possible with at the same time, putting that accountability for privileges in place. At, at the, at, when that all falls apart and none of those things are feasible and the risk factors are very high, then very often we'll use residential treatment programs, which could range from uh, wilderness programs to therapeutic boarding schools and, and everything in between. Uh, and uh, yeah, so those are all those are all things to consider very often. Substance abuse is involved in the, at, those, at those levels and cutting and all kinds of uh, risk behaviors that we need to take very seriously and intervene against. And in general, lead back to other issues going on with depression or learning differences and so on and so forth. But what I hear you saying is that we never give up. And I think that there is always hope and we never give up on our kids. Absolutely. There is always hope. And, and kids, regardless of what their behavior might indicate to us, need us, want us. And their way of communicating that or processing that is obviously is the problem, not who they are or who we are. Well, Neil, thanks for taking a walk on the wild side today with me in terms of hey, parenting our teens. The book we're talking about is Ending the Parent-Teen Control Battle, Resolve the Power Struggle, and Build Trust, Responsibility, and Respect. To learn more, please visit neildbrown.com on Twitter at, actually on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Those handles are Neil D. Brown LCSW. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure laughing with you about this as a very difficult situation and not to minimize it. It's, it's a big thing, but we do survive it, right? Yes, we do survive it. And one of my clients said, it's the biggest exercise ever in delayed gratification. So <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen. And on behalf of my guests, Alex Packer and Neil Brown, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.